Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to see you all this morning. If you would please open up in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 24, and then verses 36 and 37. I'll give you a second to get there. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy Sefarati. I like for you to know that I'm legally blind, because when I start to try to see something and don't see it, it's not some sort of um, weird thing going on, it's just I can't see. So, um, because of that, if you're new here, if this is one of your first times, you never heard me preach, um, when we stand here in a second for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to start it, you guys are going to continue reading it, because your reading is going to be better than mine, because you can see. With that, would you please stand? The title for this morning is, What Does the Prophet Know? The big idea here is that when the prophet's back is to the wall, when he's surrounded by things that should frighten him, he hopes in the God that he can call on that that God will answer him. Starting in verse 17, of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you have just spoken to us through your word, and cause your word to cause life to be born in our hearts, through your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray now that as we look into your perfect law, we would not be like those who look into a mirror and walk away, quickly forget what we see, but that we would be changed as we see Christ face to face in your word, to be more like him, 
to radiate his glory and to be obedient servants carrying his testimony everywhere we go. Father, make our lives a fragrant offering to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and please be seated. This is a fun passage of Scripture. Thank you for reading. You just read uh, you know, roughly 10 verses. It felt like an eternity, didn't it? If it did, you're probably not reading Scripture aloud enough. Take that to the bank. We're going to look at this passage. I like this passage a lot. I think this passage is a lot of fun. But it's a very big passage. Um, and I'm not going to be able to do it justice today. I'm going to try to point out some things. I'm going to make some comments about the context. I'm going to uh, try to help us understand the story a little bit better, understand what's going on, and then look forward to how this actually points us to the gospel, points us to the work of Christ, and, and, and what we can grow off of because of this. But even that's a lot. So here's a thought to just kind of get us started. Each of us is probably surrounded by a lot of different things, whether it's personal struggles or societal rejection, political tyranny, international or national crisis. There are a lot of things going on around us. And when we're confronted with things like this, it causes a couple reactions. Fear is one of them. And when we're afraid, we find ourselves in need of something greater than us. Greg read the script this morning, lead me to the rock that's higher than I am. We need something that is bigger than we are, in which we can place our trust, in which we can place our hope. I believe that Elijah is going to give us some very useful uh, witness, if you will, testimony of what was going on in his life at this point in Israel's history that we can build off of as, as we, uh, even more than just religious people as Christians, as we look and see how Christ has accomplished something on our behalf, that Elijah understood, I'm sorry, Elijah, I'm going to do that a lot. Elijah understood. My, one of my best friends' name is Elisha, so I say that a lot more than Elijah. Uh, forgive me for that. Very briefly, here's some general background points. Um, obviously, we're going to cover First Kings, the rest of it, as we go through Game of Thrones, but here's kind of a thumbnail sketch. At this point in Elijah's life, Elijah's ministry is going to last about 10 years. He's going to cover basically the end of King Ahab's 22-year reign, 21-22-year reign. So he's coming at the very end of King Ahab's reign. To put King Ahab into context, we have to understand a couple things. It's been about 50 years since Solomon's died. Since then, the nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. It's comprised of 10 tribes. The southern Israel is called Judah. It's comprised of one tribe, namely Judah. The kings in the south tend to be very good. The kings in the north, when they took off, when they separated from Judah, they immediately went into idolatry. King Jeroboam was the first king. He set up two golden calves, one in the northernmost part of the kingdom, one in the southernmost part of the kingdom. And the reason he did this was so that the people in that kingdom didn't have to go south into Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. If you, if you can keep them from going to the temple, you can keep the money, you can keep the influence in the north. That was his thinking, that's what he did. Jeroboam got set aside as the first person who led God's people into this idolatry, and every king that came after him was compared to, to Jeroboam. They led the people in the same sin as Jeroboam. They incited the Lord to anger. You're going to read that over and over again. 
So in these 50 years, the kingdom's divided. There's now idolatry worship going on in the north, and there's been about seven kings, well, there's been seven kings in the northern kingdom. Of those seven kings, there's been three separate dynasties, seven kings. Three of those kings have died by assassination. One of those kings has committed suicide after reigning for seven days. This is a great story, by the way, okay? He's a major in the army. He goes and kills the king who's drunk over here. His general hears that he's killed the king, gets really angry, comes seven days later, and surrounds the city that king's now in, the new de facto king. That de facto king, seeing that he's surrounded, sets the palace on fire and dies in it. A great end to what was a great beginning. And then we have, and that was King Amri that did that. King Amri has a son named Ahab. In Elijah's lifetime, King Ahab is set aside as the worst king in all of Israel's history. It says not only does he consider it little to follow in the sins of Jeroboam, but he also brings in the balls. This drives my wife crazy. Baal is a, is a deity from Phoenicia, a king, an idol. It's spelled B-A-A-L. You probably know that. I don't know if it's pronounced Baal, Baal, or Baal. Okay? Brett pronounced it Baal two weeks ago. I'm going with Baal. That's for you, babe. He's brought in Baal. He's brought in other kings. And, and what the scripture says in chapter 16, as we're getting into the story of Ahab, is that Ahab marries this Phoenician, the Sidonian princess named Jezebel. And for her, he builds these temples and he erects these altars to her gods. Now, this, this reminds us of Solomon, right? Solomon starts marrying foreign women. He builds temples for their gods. Ahab now gets equated to Solomon and to the sin that caused the fall of the entire nation of Israel, worse than Jeroboam. What he did is, it boggles the mind in how one man could so easily thumb his nose at God. But this is where Elijah is. This is the scene in which he finds his life. And to, to be completely honest, when you get to the end of chapter 16, in 1 Kings, until you get to about chapter 22. These are stories not about the kings anymore, but they're about the prophets, specifically Elijah and Elisha. However, King Ahab is the one who's on the throne during that time. And he's kind of the, the backdrop for all the stories of the prophets, but it's important for us to recognize that even though this is 1 Kings, even though it's telling the story of the kings, these are primarily stories about the prophets themselves. And so King Ahab serves as a character type for us to pay attention to through this story. And so we have this worst king. He set up the idolatry. He's married this princess. She's zealous for her God. She's zealous. She's fanatically zealous for her God. She goes in the killing spree of all of God's prophets. Ahab does nothing to stop it, except build her more temples. In the midst of this, close to the end of King Ahab's reign, Elijah pops up on the scene for the first time when God tells him to go tell the nation at large that God's going to stop the rain from coming until Elijah says otherwise. This, of course, puts Elijah at the top of King Ahab's love list. King Ahab has this big, life-size portrait of Elijah mounted in this court. He says, I love that guy. That guy's made life so good for me. And immediately after God gives this word to Elijah, 
God says to Elijah, now I'm going to take you over here. Again, there's a drought, which means there's going to be a famine. It's going to be hard to eat and drink. And God takes him over to another place. And this starts us off into chapter 17. This is the point of what I'm about to say. When you read 1 Kings, you're going to read this story about Elijah going off and being fed by ravens in a brook. He's going to go over. He's going to stay with a a widow. She's going to miraculously have water or oil and flour lasting as long as the drought does. Her son's going to die. Elijah's going to raise the son back to life. And you're going to ask yourself, why are these stories in here? What what am I supposed to understand by these stories? I, I want to help us understand how to read Scripture perhaps a little bit more connectedly this morning. So very briefly, let me talk about what's going on here. The introduction to the story of Elijah happens in, like I said, the end of chapter 16. And in chapter 16, you have three things said. You have Ahab, how bad he is. The fact that he married Jezebel is the second thing. And then you have this little note at the end that says, and in Ahab's day, Hiel rebuilt the city of Jericho. And he rebuilt it at the cost of his oldest son as he laid the foundation and the, the cost of the life of his youngest son when he laid the gates. In accordance with the word of God that Joshua spoke, he commanded that Jericho should never be rebuilt. You look at that and you say, goodness gracious, why is that here? I mean, does this just show how bad it is? Well, yes, in a way. But what the author is actually doing is he's building a literary device, two actually, and combining them. He's building a chiastic structure where he's pointing to three things, and he's going to point to three things that help us to see, by contrast, how bad or how good something is. And he's going to do that while using what's called in, in narrative genre three different panels where he tells three stories and they each have the same point. And so in chapter 16, we have Ahab. He's terrible. He brings in the idols. He provides temples and idols for his wife. He does not protect the prophets of God while his wife goes on this killing rampage. That's going to correspond to the story of Obadiah that comes in the beginning of chapter 18. Next, you have the story of Jezebel. Just this very brief statement of Jezebel, how bad she is as a a princess. Her story is going to compare to the story of the Sidonian widow that takes up all of chapter 17, except for the first seven verses. And then you have this brief story of Hale, or Hiel, who rebuilds the city of Jericho. That's going to compare to the story of Elijah being fed by the brooks, by the ravens at the brook. Why, why is this? Because what's happening here is the author is showing us King Ahab is very, very, very bad. Queen Jezebel is very, very bad, and it's gotten so bad, the sin is so bad, that even this guy that you're never going to hear of anywhere else is mentioned to show how bad it is. He rebuilds the city. And it's not clear whether his sons died in some sort of construction accident or if he, in fact, killed his sons and laid them in both the foundation and in the gate work, which was a very common practice at that time. In order to appease the gods, you would take your child and kill him and put his dead body into a jar and put that jar into the masonry of the wall, an oblation to the deity. I can't say the commentators can't be, can't be certain which of these it was. What is clear is that when Joshua defeated Jericho, what Joshua said was, this city is not to be rebuilt. 
And whoever tries to rebuild it, it's going to cost them their oldest son when they lay the foundation. It's going to cost them their youngest son when they put the gates up. And that's exactly what happened. So you have the king disobeying God. He's providing temples and idols. You have Jezebel, the Sidonian zealous princess, hating God, killing off all the prophets of God. Then you have Hiel, representative of the people, disobeying God. Then you have, at the very end of that, this drought that comes, this divine judgment of how bad everything is. And then you immediately turn, you start to come back out. Again, the chiastic structure to compare. And the very first thing we have is a story of Elijah going off to the brook, and he's being fed by ravens who are obeying God. God commands the birds, bring meat, bring bread twice a day over here to this guy, and the animals obey. That's in stark contrast to Heil, who's rejecting God's word, rejecting his law, and it's costing him. You then have from verse 7 or verse 8 of uh, chapter 17 through the end of the chapter, the story of the Sidonian widow. Well, what's important about the Sidonian widow? This thing right here. Number one, a widow is on the very bottom rung of society. It would have been better for her if she did not have a son because a widow who doesn't have a son can go back and live in her father's house. But a widow who has a son, that son, regardless of how old or young he is, is responsible to take care of her. So this widow has a young child, young enough that the mother can be holding him while he dies, that Elijah can carry him upstairs and pray for him when he dies, and then carry him back downstairs after God restores his life. A young son. And she's from Sidon, which is where Jezebel is princess. Her father is king in Sidon. And so you have this Sidonian woman, the Sidonian widow, protecting the prophet of God, trusting in God, despite the fact that she's at the very bottom of society, in stark contrast to Jezebel, who's at the very height of society, hates God, and has gone on a rampaging killing spree of all of God's prophets. And finally, you have the story of Obadiah. Only a few verses in chapter 18. God tells Elijah, go back to Ahab, tell him that I'm going to bring the rains again. When Elijah goes to find Obadiah, he, when he goes to find Ahab, rather, he finds Obadiah. Obadiah greets him this way, is, this, is that you, my Lord? We'll come back to that. Elijah says, yes, it's me. Go tell your master that I'm going to see him today. Obadiah says, um, just to clarify, are you going to be here when I get back? Because if you're not, I'm dead. And Elijah says, yes, I will. And Obadiah says, okay, as the Lord your God lives, I'm going to do it. And Obadiah goes off and obeys. But before this, he says, don't you know what I've done? When Jezebel was killing the, the prophets of God, I took a hundred of them and I hid them in caves. I protected them providing food and water as a stark contrast to Ahab, who at the same time, while Jezebel was going killing all these prophets of God, he was providing temples and idols, not protecting the prophets. Obadiah, who is a steward in his house, he's over the household 
of Ahab. He's a godly man. He's a devout man. He fears God. He obeys God. And this stands in stark contrast. So while Jezebel's killing them, he's protecting the prophets from Jezebel. He's providing food and water for them, as opposed to idols and temples. Do you see what the author's doing? The stories that come, these, these few little vignettes, are not random sequences to help fill out your children's story Bible. They're telling a much bigger arc, a much greater narrative, helping us understand a lot more. And so that leads us into our text for this morning. And I'm sorry I've taken up so much time with that. I believe it's important. So we get back to Obadiah says to him, Is that you, my Lord? In verse 17 of chapter 18, Elijah is coming to King Ahab. King Ahab, the first thing, this is the beginning, and this starts off this, this tremendous bout, this, this clash of titans that's going to happen between Yahweh and Baal. And it's going to be played out between Ahab and Elijah in many ways. And it starts right here in verse 17, and Ahab sees Elijah. And he says, is that you, you vexer of the people? which is to say the one who is the curse himself, the one who brought this curse on Israel. Is that you? It's been three years now, okay? They haven't seen each other in three years. It's been famine. King Ahab probably doesn't look the same way he did before. Elijah probably doesn't either. So this, is it you, is probably not simply rhetorical, but it is certainly showing the greeting, the animosity. And he says, is that you, you vexer of the people, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah doesn't skip a beat. He says, I'm not the troubler. I'm not the problem here, pal. You are. You and your family are. Because you rejected Yahweh. You went to the balls. You're the one who brought this on Israel. And here we have to take a step back. Why? Here's what we have to understand. Baal, as a deity, was responsible for the growth of the crops. That means that he was the God who brings life. He was the God who brings rain. And he's also a God who demands things by fire. Fire, rain, and life. Just as a side note, it's not just the drought that's in, that, that's, we have to understand here, because the drought certainly is, it's a, it's a direct assault on the power of Baal. It's a direct assault. Your God provides water? Okay, here's what my God says. No water. Taps off. It's going to hurt, too. Now, Ahab's not going to walk away from this and say, wow, Yahweh must be the real God. Ahab's going to walk away for three years and basically say, you know what? Baal must be really angry at Elijah. That's why he's not letting the water come. The problem here is not that my God is wrong. The problem is this prophet has ticked off my God, and now my God's taking it out on me. There's probably a little bit of uh, takeaway there somewhere. But you also have to understand this. We already saw a resurrection of life in this story, didn't we? The widow's son was brought back to life. Who's supposed to be able to do that in Israel? That would be Baal, the guy who can't bring water. Okay? Keep that in mind. So we have this fight being set up between Baal and Yahweh. <laughs> I'm sitting here wondering why I can't read my iPad. That helps. 
So there's a great drama that's about to unfold here. It's between Yahweh. It's between Baal. They're going to step into the ring. The arena for this fight is going to be between the, these, these, the power to control water, the power to bring crops, the power to provide life, and the power specifically of fire. And the ring is Mount Carmel. Here's what you have to understand about Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is a very green, lush mountain in the northwest of Israel. Okay? When you walk into Mount Carmel, if your God is Baal, and Baal is the one who's responsible to make things lush and green, you walk to Mount Carmel and you say, I'm in his house right here. And this is what God tells Elijah to do. God says to Elijah, listen, you go into his house. You take that rock from him. You go to where he is supposed to have the most power, where the demonstration is most clear that he is God, because that's where I'm going to work. And so they step into the ring. And then Elijah, and this is crucial that we understand this. There's a word play that's going on here in the Hebrew between the words call and answer. They're going to take up the majority of our text from here on out. Elijah basically starts looking at the people, and he starts with Ahab, and he says, listen, uh, place your bets, man. He says to Ahab, listen, place your bet. Call the people of Israel together. Tell them to go to Mount Carmel. And here's what's important. Elijah told Ahab, call them. And Ahab called them. There was an obedience. They get to Mount Carmel, and Elijah turns to the people and he says to them, how long are you going to limp between these two things? How long are you going to vacillate? How long are you going to kind of go milly-mouth between these two things? If Yahweh is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. And the people answered nothing. And so Elijah sweetens the deal. Elijah says to them, go get two bulls. And you choose first. You choose the bull you want. Cut the bull up. Build yourself an altar. Altar. Put the bull on the altar, but don't set fire to it. And you call on your God, and I'll call on my God. And the God who answers by fire, that one is God. And now the people answer. They say, this is good. We can do this. But they're not willing to step up to the table and put in a $5 chip. A $5 chip. But when Elijah says, you know what, I got 10 grand on the table here, they say, okay, we're in. So the fight starts. Round one, Elijah says, uh, you guys go first. And so in the morning, the priests of Baal, 450 of them, 450, that's important. Because Elijah has just said to the people, I'm the only prophet of God left. He's, he's showing just how stacked the deck is. I'm in his house right here. I'm in his court. He's not only got home court advantage, his entire squad is here, and I'm the only one on this bench. And we're about to get it going. And it's not going to be a fair fight. I'm going to let them have home court advantage. I'm going to let them go first. 
And when they go, I'm going to let them go all day long. And so the priests of Baal, they build the temple, they cut up the bull, they put the bull on the altar, and they start calling to Baal, Baal, answer us, Baal, answer us, and send fire. But Baal answered nothing. Which is not hard for a mute God. They're very good at it. This goes on for about four hours. We didn't read this part in the text. I'll gloss over it very briefly here. Midday, Elijah's starting to get antsy. Not because he's worried, but because it's been four hours and nothing's happened. The priests of Baal are dancing around. This word dancing is the same word that Elijah spoke to the people. How long are you going to flip-flop between these? This idea of, of limping between, it's the idea of dancing that the priests are doing around this altar, on this altar, trying to get Baal's attention. Hear us and answer us. Look, I'm doing, you know, I, it's, maybe, I'm in, maybe the peyote's going. Who knows? There's probably some sort of altered state of consciousness. The dancing, you know, it's not like some guy, like, you know, doing a great... <laughs> this is why we don't vodcast right there. <laughs> it's not someone who can dance well. Okay? This dancing is, is equivalent to limping. It's the same Hebrew word for a bow broken off a tree. The idea is a crutch. What you're doing between Baal and Yahweh is you're limping on this crutch, which is the same thing that Elijah's saying that the author's saying the priests of Baal are doing to get Baal's attention. It's been four hours of this. They're calling out to him. And so he says, you know, I'm going to start to have some fun with him. He starts to, starts to heckle him. Hey, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's out of the country. Maybe you should leave a message. Did you, did you try tweeting? Uh, maybe his battery's dead. You know, maybe his phone needs to be charged. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Give him some privacy. I, I don't know. And he's antagonizing them. As the only guy on this bench, he's antagonizing the whole team of 450 prophets, King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, and all of Israel. The prophet must know something. And so we read, that at the time of the evening offering. That's where we have to get the timeline here. Prophets of Baal started in the morning. They've been going probably for eight hours. In the afternoon, in response to Elijah's heckling them, antagonizing them, they step it up a notch. They pull out their knives and their spears. They start cutting themselves, mutilating their body. It says, until their blood flowed. I'm not get ahead of myself here. So Elijah steps up and says, okay, my turn. There's, there's not much time left in the day. It's going to be nighttime soon. We need to wrap this up. And so he rebuilds the altar, and you know the story. He rebuilds the altar that was there. He cuts up the bowl. He places the bowl on the altar. He then digs a trench around it that can hold two, some sort of measurements of seed, how big it is, we don't know, but it's apparently worth noting. And he tells the people who are there to go get four buckets of water, four barrels of water, and to pour them over the altar. They do it, and he says, do it again. 
You do it, and he says, do it a third time. And, and you have these, these poetic pictures here. There's 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. There's 12 total buckets of water, one for each of the months of the year, one for each of the, the, the tribes of Israel. But the, it's done three times. One for each year of drought. They're dumping this water on. The one thing that they haven't had for three years is being represented there. And after it's all soaked, and Elijah has thoroughly handicapped Yahweh. From word go, we're going to go into Baal's house. We're going to give them all day long to do it. We're going to let them go first. When it is our turn, we're going to make it as hard to light this thing as possible. And Elijah steps back, and he, for the first time, calls to Yahweh. And what he calls to Yahweh is, answer me, answer me, so that the people may know that you are God in Israel and that you are turning their hearts. Fire falls done. A prayer that took less than 30 seconds. That's tremendous. <laughs> I, I wish this were a movie. They couldn't make it a movie, though because they'd want to extend this thing with Elijah at the end there. They'd want to make him sweat. They'd want to make it seem like all this time was passing, and is Yahweh going to answer? It's a cliffhanger. It's an, no, it's not. It was never in question in Elijah's mind. He was not there saying, ooh. Here's the thing. Elijah had his back against the wall. He was in a corner. He'd laid everything on the line. And either Yahweh was going to answer or he was going to die. But remember what he'd already seen. God tells the ravens, go feed them. They feed them. God says, go over there, find this widow. He goes over there, finds the widow. God says, she's not going to run out of flour. He says, you're not going to run out of flour. She doesn't run out of flour. He brings him his son, her son, after he's died. He says, why have you come to... Bring my sin to remembrance. He takes the son up to heaven, up to the, up to the top of the house where his room is, and basically turns the same question to God. He says, God, why have you brought the sin of this woman to remembrance? Please bring the child back to life. Three times he prays over the child. Life is back. Brings the life. Bring the child back to the mother. He's seen all of this. Don't think for a second, though, that Elijah wasn't afraid. We're going to see that at the end of chapter 18. He's <laughs> Elijah's human. He's flesh and bones, brother and sister. He trusts God. And yet, when he's faced with Jezebel, he runs scared. And then God has to go and find him. It's this still small voice. You know the story. Don't read this as if it's a myth. Don't make the mistake that, that many of our liberal brothers and sisters do in thinking that, that this is some kind of holy fantasy. 
some kind of strong moral story that tells us about how we should trust God and how that gets us through things. That is not what's going on. This is the story of a real man who really experienced three years of drought, who really went to people and said, this is what God has said, who really put himself on the line on Carmel in order to bring the rain, okay? In order so that God, when he said the rain's going to come, it would come. Elijah goes and he puts all this together. And I don't believe that he, while I don't believe he was biting his nails, neither do I believe that it was lost on him just how wrong this could go if it went sideways. Elijah called on Yahweh with his back against the wall. And this makes us think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Know this, O king, we will not bow. Our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. This reminds us of Peter. In John chapter 6, verse 68 and 69. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you guys going to leave me also? And Peter says, where are we going to go? Who else has the words of life? My back may be against the wall, but what are my options? Oh God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, answer me. Answer me. So that we may know that there is a God in Israel and that you are turning the hearts of your people back to you. Fire falls, consuming everything around that altar. God answers, and then the people respond. Now, in a way, the climax of the story is the people of Israel responding in that moment after they catch their breath, after they clean up their soiled undergarments, saying, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is Lord. That's the climax, that's the high point. But notice this. They responded after God. Here's where I want to bring us to. Question all of this should always be, okay, we can, we can understand about chiastic stru structures. We can understand about panels and how they, they work to, to help us understand the story. We can read scripture well. We can bring those literary thoughts and ideas into our toolbox so that when we approach scripture, we can do it well. We can understand how these stories all fit together into one large narrative arc. That's great. really is. But here's the pressing question. Where is the gospel in this? This is where I'm going to spend our last few minutes. Elijah points forward to the true prophet, Christ. How? Well, there's several ways that I, I'm going to point out here. One, Jesus trusted God perfectly. 
Elijah trusted God. We're going to find out it's not perfect. Jesus trusted God perfectly. Jesus proclaimed God's word perfectly. Elijah would go when God told him to and say, say, this is what I'm telling you to say, Jesus only ever spoke the words of his Father. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. Jesus stood alone against the world's power. Jesus called out to God on our behalf. Jesus was himself laid on the altar. And Jesus himself arose from the dead in the same way after the people of Israel proclaimed Yahweh as God, they took the 450 prophets of Baal down the mountain and slaughtered them. So Christ, when he was raised from the dead, laid waste power of sin and death. The story points us forward and points us to the table. We're going to end here. Because Jesus lived, we do not have to die. And because Jesus died, we are now able to live. Jesus hung on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth for our sake, and called out to his Father, speaking to the Romans specifically, but by extent to the world order, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yahweh answered his son. Maybe you're here this morning and all of this is making no sense to you. That's the case. Really sorry. I do want one thing to be very clear to you. The reason we gather as a church is because we are convinced from Scripture, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and from the example and the experiences of our lives, that there is a God, that He has told us how we are to live, and that we have failed to live up to His standards. That His anger and judgment rightly is towards us, but that he in his grace provided a means of substitutionary atonement where his son came and took our place, received our punishment, died the death we should have died, and then, as I said, rose from the dead, and because he rose, and when he rose, offered to us eternal life, newness of life in this life, eternal life in the life to come, and riches upon riches in both, 
all of the things that Christ rightly lays claim to as his inheritance, he's offered to us. And this table, where we remember that Christ himself was physically mutilated, his blood flowed down the altar of the cross. Yahweh answered. And we are now able to respond. We don't have to cut ourselves any longer. We don't have to mutilate our bodies. We don't have to call out to God to try to get his attention. We don't have to try to appease him so that he gives us the things that we need. Because Jesus was laid up on that altar. His own blood shed. God received the sacrifice. And we On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took the bread, and after supper, after he had given thanks, he broke the bread. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. He poured it out. He said, this cup, cup of the new covenant, in my blood, which is poured out for you, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. Father, we turn to you in humble gratitude. Grateful, Father, that you provided the sacrifice that you required. Grateful, Father, that you do not withhold good things from us. And grateful, Father, that we do not have to harm ourselves to receive your favor. But, Father, one had to be harmed. One had to be crushed and humiliated. And it pleased you to crush your son. And he did not consider the humiliations anything worth anything. But he accepted them. And he humbled himself to the point of death, dying on the cross. And when you received his blood, you counted it to us as righteousness. You called us into your family. You gave us new names and a new heart. Father, what can we do except say thank you? Father, I pray this morning that as we heard your word, you would change us. As we consider your table, as we receive the grace of this fellowship meal of love, that you would change us and that you would send us out from here as people who, having heard your answer, are compelled to respond, you are God. May we declare your glory, Lord, as we receive your blood of your body. The elements have been passed around. If you please hold on to them, we'll take them together. Father, I don't, I don't understand the depth of your love.
you would give your only son to be broken in my place. Don't understand. But I see that you did. And you've told me why you did. And I have experienced new life in Christ. Your grace, you've changed my life. Father, all I can do is say thank you. Father, I, for myself and for my brothers and sisters here, I, I would ask, Father, that you would continue to cause the knowledge of the glory of the cross of Christ. to break apart our hearts where they are hard, where they are callous, where they are cold, that you would cause gratitude to spring forward. You would cultivate our hearts, that they would be hearts of gratitude as we see more clearly what it costs you to give us this gift. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that you, Father, chose to send your Son. His body would be cut up and put onto that altar, consumed by the fire of your wrath. And that we were spared. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy. Take and eat. Father, we have been created in your image. Told Noah that the life of a man is in his blood. We hold in our hands the representation of the very life of our Savior, who indeed did die but did not remain in the ground. But the power of his life extended even into the grave and drew him back out of death back to life and extended to us to pull us from death to life and to move us into eternity with eternal life. Fathers, we have been the recipients of this amazing gift, of this powerful life. Would you too make us conduits so that like Elijah, when your word comes to us, we would not remain silent. But we would go where you direct us. We would speak what you give us to speak. And we would place our faith and our hope in you, knowing that you are faithful. Knowing, just as we know that Christ is no longer in the ground, that our hope is not in a book written 2,000 years ago, our hope is not in a man who lays dead somewhere. Our hope is in the living God of all of creation. Where else can we go? What else can we do? You have the words of life. You are the bread of life. And we would extend your life, Father. Cause us to be your great ambassadors, Father, I pray. That we might more deeply experience the life of Christ, both now and in life.
Thank you. Thank you. Father, in all your ways, you are good. You are worthy of honor. You are worthy of our gratitude. Father, I say thank you. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. Change our hearts. You open our eyes to understand what is the hope of your calling. Inheritance that you have in all the believers. Power that raised Christ from the dead is extended towards us. Thank you for meeting with us this morning, Father. Keep us, Lord, I pray. In your hand of protection, in the guidance of your Holy Spirit, in the fellowship of your love, that we too might be a fragrant offering to you and to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You stand, I'll speak a word of benediction. This is from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Do not fear. For I am with you, and do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen and hold you, and I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Go in the confidence and peace that you have because of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. In his name. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.